It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. It's spring break and we needed a cooling off period. Totally needed that. We're recording the podcast. By we, I mean everybody else, not us. Because yeah, we're together right now. <laughs> That's right. We, we are together on spring break here at Carolina Beach, looking out this window, beautiful blue sky, upper 70s weather. It's so great. Not a lot of news in NC Poll this week. I mean, a little bit, but compared to the last two weeks, three weeks, it's been relatively quiet. I guess everyone's enjoying their family and friends. Yeah, I think a lot of people took vacations and the shock waves from last week were still, I mean, we had some aftershocks this week, let's say that. Yeah. And of course, we're talking about Representative Trisha Cotham's political party switch. The media is still talking about it. Mm-hmm. Social media is still talking about it. Mm-hmm. And Governor Roy Cooper, he weighed in this week with a pretty statesmanlike message about what's going on. His tweet thread said, quote, if she keeps her word on the issues, her votes in the position she takes in the Republican caucus can still stop bad legislation that hurts people she promised to help, regardless of her party. He also said she's talked about her need for freedom of thought and standing up to her old party. The question is, can she also stand up to her new one, especially when they push an agenda she's fought against for years? I thought that last quote was really interesting because, correct me if I'm wrong, there seems to be a tacit acknowledgement that maybe they haven't handled the centrist the best way. Yeah, you and I talked about this a little bit, and it does seem that there is some introspection Mm -hmm. in that statement. The party base still seems to be angry, but maybe that side of the aisle the Democratic caucuses, are going to be more open to a centrist path. Only time will tell. So we've talked a lot about the Speaker's riding bill, and this year it had a bipartisan co-sponsor and Representative Schelling Willingham. That had passed, and it has already been challenged in court. Many thought that the governor was going to veto that legislation. He had vetoed it last biennium. This year, he let the bill become law without his signature, made a statement that he thought the bill had changed some and he was going to allow it to become law. Now, many of us thought, okay, he doesn't have the votes on the veto override. He's trying to keep his powder dry on other bills. But the ACLU went to court and they're challenging the constitutionality of the law. Can you explain exactly what their case is? Essentially, the ACLU is just arguing that the way the bill is written is too vague and broad to target the folks that the bill sponsors state that they are targeting with this language. Okay. So it's going to get too many people swept up in it, like a provision that said, just if you were encouraging other people, that would make you liable without actually committing the action. We had some political news this week. U.S. Senator Ted Budd endorsed former President Trump for his re-election campaign in 2024. Now, notable that Trump endorsed Senator Budd in his election campaign last year. 
and many have credited President Trump, that endorsement, uh, for elevating Senator Bud. He was really not very well known outside of his Greensboro Triad Area District, but that endorsement came in Greenville, North Carolina at the GOP convention, shocked a lot of people, especially Governor McCrory, who was in that race, uh, Congressman Mark Walker, also in that race. Of course, President Trump has his own problems right now in his run-up for the presidency in 2024, and we're expecting that to all come to a head by the end of the year up in New York State for campaign law violations. We'll just see how all of that plays out. In the meantime, we learned that Former Vice President Mike Pence will be visiting North Carolina next week. I imagine that North Carolina being an earlier state, uh, March 2024, we will start to see even more presidential candidates coming to the state. Still haven't seen a Governor Ron DeSantis visit us or a former Governor Nikki Haley, but I imagine we are on their list soon. Uh, We also got this past week, at the Easter egg roll at the White House, it seems as if President Joe Biden is going to announce in the next month or so that he is running for re-election. I imagine we will get some visits from him soon as well. Speaking of Easter eggs, I do believe that I saw that the eggs delivered to the White House came from North Carolina. Oh, that's right. This week, one of my favorite legislators came on the podcast. We got to sit down with Representative Dennis Rydell and really learn some new things about him. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Representative Dennis Rydell, thanks for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. I know you've been after me for a while. So <laughs> I've been pretty slippery, but I'm here now. Glad to be here we got you hooked. <laughs> You're going to reel me in. Slow reel. Slow reel are the okay. best ones. Tell us about your district. Where is your district? Why do you think your district's special? Oh, well, my district's special because my wife and children live there. Um, I'm in half of Alamance County, generally the southern half and the western part of the county from uh, where I live in Snow Camp in the southern part all the way up to the Caswell and Rockingham border. And what makes Alamance County special is it's home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is home for a lot of people, but it has become our home. Both uh, my wife and I came from different states, but all of our eight children are, were born in North Carolina, and all but two are still there. Uh, just as a place to raise a family, I can't think of a better spot. You've got a little bit of rural area still left in the northern and southern parts of the county, and that, we're in the southern part, as I said. And then you have 8540 that goes roaring through the heart of Alamance County. So we have a lot of the modern world and amenities just a few minutes drive away from us. And it is a growing county. Mm-hmm. And you probably see that when you mm-hmm. pass through on either end. A lot of multifamily dwellings going up, a lot of uh, subdivisions developing in the area. So it's a growing place, just a great, great place to raise a family. Mm-hmm. You mentioned you and your wife are from different states. What states are you from? Uh, my wife, Polly, grew up in Muncie, Indiana. And uh, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, a little town called Montero. 
unincorporated, just right on the beach, about 20 miles south of the city. What got you here? <laughs> Good question. And how did you meet Polly? Yeah. Uh, even better. Yeah. Uh, we were both students at uh, Bob Jones University in Greenville, South Carolina. And I, I love telling this story. I'm glad you asked. She's the best thing that has ever happened to me in my life mm-hmm. and has accented uh, our family and uh, our lives together in the most beautiful way daily, which is quite a challenge. I was at lunch with a roommate in a cafeteria that set to hold about three, 4,000 people. And I happened to look to my left and saw this woman about probably 50, 60 feet away, carrying her tray back through to turn it in and leave. And I elbowed my roommate and I said, who is that? Hmm. He said, there's 4,000 people here. He said, how am I supposed to know who everybody is? Mm-hmm. I said, now come on, take another look, who is she? He said, I don't know, Dennis. He said, I've not seen her before. So that night I sat down with my roommate's yearbook and I went page by page by page <laughs> till I found the smile that was so striking. And you know yeah. the smile, yeah. it's yeah. Uh, captivating. And that's how we met. So I asked her out and we had a great time. Met, never met anybody quite like her. Wow. And we were engaged uh, about three months later and uh, married the following year. For all our young listeners out so there, that's sweet. pre-Facebook, right? You had, to actually, <laughs> yeah. you had to actually go look in a book and find that face. That's instead of Facebook, it was your book. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. How does a California kid end up at Bob Jones University? Well, that's an interesting twist. That was a place my older brother had gone to. Okay. And when he came back uh, talking about the gospel and Jesus Christ and need to be saved, and uh, I thought he was the weirdest person wondered what they had done to him mm-hmm. and swore I'd never go there to keep from going to Bob Jones University. I talked my, mostly my dad into letting me go to the California Maritime Academy there in the San Francisco Bay Area. Mm-hmm. My dad's an old Navy stiff from World War II and he liked the idea of you know, me working on ships. But my motivation was not entirely pure. It was, they give me a choice. You can go to Bob Jones University or you can go someplace else, but we really want you to go to the BJ. And I opted out of the BJ opportunity took the road to California Maritime Academy, doing my own thing and uh, not doing it well, uh, living my life my way, hmm. which proved to be a very uh, hurtful way for other people. And I kind of came to the end of my rope my senior year there. And uh, the Maritime Academy, it's a training facility for the Merchant Marine. Hmm. And so we would go on a training cruise two months out of the year. And on that last training cruise, my senior year, I just realized I needed some something else, something better in my life, and uh, remembered the gospel that my brother shared with me about Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for my sins, your sins, everybody's sins. And I got down on my knees on a steel deck on that ship and asked Christ to if he found something redemption, something redeeming in my life to save me and give me a, a different direction and a new life, which he did. So a lot of interesting, we would call maybe coincidences or the people would say accidents, I think, or moments of providence interrupting my life because I was not on a good path. I was on a path that was probably going to lead to an early grave, I think. You know, we think about the merchant marines and we think about that lifestyle of being on the road. I mean, mm-hmm. is that a part of just what was also weighing you down spiritually? Uh, just the... Uh, the Merchant Marine is um, a unique occupation because it's a generally, not always, but generally a bunch of men mm-hmm. all together, and there's a, a, 
a lowest common denominator that things seem to go to at that in that kind of surrounding sometimes and in in the sailor life there's just a lot of temptations and things that uh, can lead you astray get you in trouble yeah uh, but we're I not hope, the best when it's just us are we yeah. as men yeah I mean we we are the lowest common <laughs> if it wasn't for women it wouldn't be much of a civilization you know, truly so the person I know and see in front of me is not the person you're describing I mean so we're talking about that rebirth right yeah that's uh, the work of Christ his spirit dwelling in me and changed my whole life from top to bottom, inside and out. And I'm much, I'm much happier now than I was then. It proved to be kind of a, uh, just trying to pull water out of an empty well after a while. Mm-hmm. How old were you at that moment? I was 21. 21. At the point when I uh, asked Christ to be my savior and got redeemed. So you leave the merchant marine path of education and you go to Bob Jones, you, you transfer or do you no, graduate I, and go get it? I was in the senior year and okay. uh, I figured I'd come that far. I needed to do that. Plus it was going to be a good trade. Okay. It's going to be a right. good career mm-hmm. paid. Well, you just had to like to travel, which was not really a problem for me. And you, ha- you couldn't get seasick. That would have been a problem. Yeah. Uh, but that was never an issue uh, with me. So I went out to uh, sea basically for a couple of years, went to college part-time. And uh, uh, took some credits to get me transferred from an engineering background to a history teacher, which is what I was going to study at Bob Jones University. And did that. Uh, graduated there in 83. Uh, Polly and I, we were married in 82. She finished her bachelor's degree then, and she finished a master's degree in 83. Was invited to become a teaching assistant for two years in the physical education department. So she took that and finished another master's degree. So... I can say with a straight face that my wife provably has, is twice as smart as I am. Mm-hmm. She has two master's degrees, and I only have one. Mm-hmm. But uh, we came up here to North Carolina, to Alamance County, to take teaching positions at the Alamance Christian School. I, I knew okay. very few people up here at the time, just believing we were going to follow where the Lord led us. And looking back, it's just been wonderful. Yeah. Uh, just coming up here, living in North Carolina, it's just a great state. And where we live in Snow Camp, we just a uh, wonderful climate where to, to raise family, to raise children, which we have a few of. Yeah. <laughs> we have a listener who said that you were her history teacher. Oh, is that right? <laughs> That's right. Did she say whether I was a good history teacher or a bad yeah, history teacher? Yeah, she said that you were great. <laughs> yeah, she just brought that up to us the other day when we were talking about trying to get you on the podcast. Really? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's one of the blessings of teaching. I still have some former students or adults with some with grandchildren now mm-hmm. uh, stop you in Walmart or someplace and say hello and just visit. It's uh, You don't get a lot of money teaching, mm-hmm. so the payback is oftentimes when you hear something good about a former student or they're complimentary about their time with you. Uh, that's the real paycheck. So you're teaching and you, so you're using your second degree from Bob Jones University. You also have transitioned, I guess you go back to using your first degree. Do you see? Yeah, we uh, taught for seven years. Seven years. At Alamance Christian. That door closed, so I just went back out to sea. It was easy to do because I kept my license and everything current and would actually go to sea out in the summertime uh-huh. and then come back when the school year started, do teaching mm. for the school year, oh. and then the day after school was out, I was on a plane back to California usually to get on the ship and would be there for the summertime and then come back about a week before school started. One time, a month after school started, which was a little 
I see. Uh-huh. <laughs> School board frowned on that. And finished a 35-year career in the Merchant Marine as an engineering officer back in 2013. Can you talk about that work? You've described it to me, and it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. And can you kind of give us just a, a little primer on that? Well, my work was in the engine room of the ship. So uh, you have generally two, sometimes three departments. You have a deck department, which is primarily for the cargo stowage, handling, and then the navigation of the vessel. You have an engineering department. We used to say in a vernacular that we keep the lights burning and the shaft turning. <laughs> and then you have a steward's department who would provide your meals and a little bit of housekeeping for you. But... A uh, very small group. The last ship I did any steady work on, we had maybe 21 crew members on a ship just shy of 900 feet long. Wow. And that would carry about 2,400 of the uh, transfer truck kind of boxes, the containers that you see. Mm-hmm. And it had a big, giant diesel engine down below in the engine room, and that was my domain. So a little bit of uh, diesel knowledge, some purifiers, pumps, electrical refrigeration, just kind of a jack-of-all-trades. Uh, enough to keep the ship going from port to port, and if you needed help on something really critical that maybe was beyond the ship's crew, you would have a shore gang meet you maybe in the port, next port, and give you a hand. How long were your voyages or assignments? Oh, it changed during my tenure there. It actually started out my first ship. I was, we'd be in port three or four days. It was what we call a boom ship. It had the big cranes, mm. and they would lift containers up one at a time. And then we got into the containerization, which they would do a lot faster and a lot quicker stowage. So I went from being three and four days in ports like Yokohama, Japan, or uh, Subic Bay in the Philippines, to being in and out in 24 hours or less. And the last ship I was on for, uh, it was about eight years, I think, uh, I'd go from the west coast of California to Hawaii and back to the west coast on a two-week run. It was like a bus schedule. You could pinpoint where you're going to be two weeks away. It was wow. a very tight schedule. We had we were part of that what they call the uh, just-in-time delivery. Okay. And uh, Walmart would put out their circulars in the Sunday newspaper saying these you know, things will be at the store available for Thursday morning. We got in Wednesday night, and Walmart had a contract that they were first. So they would have their groceries in the proper place on Thursday morning. Was it hard for you to be away from your family for no. long periods of time? Uh, before I got married, it was not difficult at all. Okay. <laughs> but once I met Polly, uh, it was kind of a splendid misery because... Uh, that was how we provided for our family, mm-hmm. and I was always thankful for that. But it was very difficult to leave her. And then when we started having children, it was even more difficult. And it takes uh, a very sturdy soul to be the woman that's at home without your husband around to do the things that husbands do or should do. Uh, but she is a very stout-hearted woman. She is not... <laughs> <laughs> A dish rag. <laughs> she mm-hmm. is an oak. Mm-hmm. And uh, she managed the family quite well when I was home. We homeschooled, so that fell to her completely mm-hmm. when I was gone. And all the children uh, did really well in school. All They're all adults now. And we lost one child back in uh, mm-hmm. 2005 to an accident. I'm sorry. But uh, yeah, the Lord got us through that. Mm-hmm. That was the lowest of the lows. Bad. I was actually in China. Oh. when that occurred. So mm. I was not able to be there oh. for any kind of comfort when it happened. Uh, the company was very gracious and diligent about getting me home uh, quickly. I had to spend the night in a hotel in Shanghai. And I, I remember waking up and just thinking, this, I just had the most horrible dream that my son had passed away. What a terrible mm. dream. And I reached to my right to turn the light on, and there was nothing there to turn the light on. So I started fumbling around and finally found the light on my left side, turned the light on. 
and realized I was in a hotel room. Ready right? and if the intention of flying out, that's that's looking up at the bottom. That is. Mm-hmm. That was very hard for her and for me. Yeah. And uh, thankfully, we had a wonderful family, a great group of church friends, and they just acted like flotation devices. They just were our life jackets and just kept us buoyant and our heads above the, the flood, essentially. How old was your son? He's 13. Yeah. I'm so sorry. But, you know, we got through that. <laughs> God making his presence known, the love of Christ shining through. Yeah, so you can get through things that you never imagined you could mm-hmm. with the right friends and family and I think faith, big part of that. Yeah. How did you decide that you were going to get involved in politics? Um, it was kind of decided for me, I think, to a certain extent. Uh, my father uh, got involved in Barry Goldwater's presidential campaign back in 1964. Mm-hmm. And I was aware that there was something about this that was my interest in my dad. And you know, a young man wants to hang with his father mm-hmm. as much as possible, typically. So the next election cycle was... Uh, I tell folks an out-of-work former actor who was trying to be governor of California, and it was Ronald Reagan's first campaign, and he won that campaign in 1966. And that's the one I first campaign. I was 10 years old where I actually remember doing campaigning kind of things with my dad. And I liked it, took an interest in it. I thought, this is, as you get older, you, you understand that I think what we have here in America is very rare, and we get to pick who's going to make decisions for us. And that's not been the norm throughout most of human history. It's been somebody else telling you what you're going to do, when you're going to do it, and how you're going to do it. But here in America, we get to choose our leaders. Sometimes we choose good, sometimes we choose not so good. And miraculously, the nation continues on. We're still electing our leaders. And I just thought that was something that was worth trying to preserve and to be a part of. And I just have always then been involved in campaigns. When we moved to Alamance County in North Carolina back in uh, 1985, one of the first things I did was contact a local Republican Republican Party and uh, got involved there and served as chairman after a while. I was vice chairman. I was precinct chairman. I was area chairman. And started a young Republican club uh, oh. with kids from the school where I was teaching that had an interest also. And uh, just continued doing that. I thought I was concerned about which way in the future it's going to go for my children. Large national debt, just some ideas that just seemed to poison some of the bedrock foundational things uh, that make for a free land, I think. And uh, the fellow who was my predecessor, Dan Engel, he's a mm-hmm. former county commissioner and law enforcement individual, he called me up in September of 2011, and he's got a big, loud voice, and he mm-hmm. said, Dennis, he said, I'm not running for re-election. He said, I want you to think about taking my place. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I was taken back. I, I never thought of myself as really... Uh, being in elective office, I always felt like my role was to be supportive and help other smarter, good people uh, take the role of actually doing the leading. And we talked it out quite a bit. And I told him, I said, you know, this is a big decision. I said, let me get together with my family. I said, we're going to the beach in about a week, and we'll just pray over it at the beach and just see uh, which way we should go. And we did that. And I remember one of my uh, girls, I think it was, when we pr- told him what was going to happen and that it would sh- affect our family, it would change our family uh, in certain ways. And uh, she said, Dad, she said, You're, you can finally get paid for doing what you've been doing for the last 30 years. You need to do this. <laughs> the kids are very supportive. I've always helped. 
in the campaigns. And of course, Polly has been my right hand. Of course, they didn't know that you only make 13,009, right? <laughs> so yeah, they, they were not aware of that. We did. We knew. And uh, it should be service. Yeah. It yeah. should not be. Uh, I'm, comp- I'm compensated fine. Sure. And you, sometimes a compensation is a good day like yesterday when you get a bill passed on the House floor. That's, right. That's the real compensation. That's when you realize something you believe in that you believe will do good yeah. for the people of our state is maybe on its way to becoming, you know, enacted legislation. I love my job. I love the I legislative. Know. Yeah. And Polly is your legislative assistant. My wife so, is yeah. my legislative assistant. Yeah. So anybody that comes in the door gets to see that same smile mm-hmm. that captivated me some 40, almost 41 years ago. Mm-hmm. She's a sweet voice on the phone if you should call. Mm-hmm. And she's generally the very nice email that you get. She's very kind. So throughout your time at the legislature, is there an issue that you've worked on that you, like you just told that story from yesterday, I assume it's the Convention of States bill? Yes, the Convention of States. Um, is there an issue that you've worked on that it became law and you really felt the impact that you had on the community? Yeah, it's one we have worked on. Mm-hmm. And that was the legislation involving child sexual abuse mm-hmm. and getting that two-year window looked back as well as trying to raise the age for you know, the statute of limitations. So somebody who was victimized like that, and there are many, too many in our culture who are silent victims walking around with wounded hearts who were taken advantage of by an adult somewhere along the line in their life. And they have no recourse after age 21. Mm-hmm. And one way to expose who those people are is to get more people coming out with the uh, legitimate accusations. And so as we worked through that, I think that was the way we really cemented our friendship, which yeah. I've been very grateful for. Y'all have been a wonderful blessing in our life, and it's been good working on, I think, great legislation. So getting something like that enacted, getting it through the committee process with a little bit of a hubbub. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't something a lot of people welcomed, as we know, but it was necessary to give people their voice back. Because what we were pursuing was trying to you know, get the statute of limitations extended so a victim could sue in civil court. Damages because the damage is done to somebody who's victimized as a child sexually are uh, a lifetime. Mm-hmm. They don't go away. And so somebody should bear the brunt of that. It oftentimes leads to issues of uh, you know, drug abuse and broken relationships, uh, delinquency, and things like that as children try to process what adults have foisted upon them in a very cruel and inhuman way. Uh, just rejoicing in the house, it passed unanimously. Yeah. And that was mm-hmm. not where it was heading originally. Right. So it was a lot of work by some folks like you behind the scenes, talking to legislators and, and myself and other people, victims stepping forward. I'd like to share this with your audience. I was amazed how many people came to me within the General Assembly family, some legislators, some staff, and said, that happened to me. Oh my. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad you're... Uh, I'm so glad you're pursuing that and you're going to give me my day in court that I was that was robbed from me before so uh, that was probably the most poignant moment you are so nice and civil in your presentation in your work on legislation but don't be fooled you're also tough as nails you fight for your bills Mm While it was a unanimous vote, you really had to fight to get those bills in committee, to get them heard. You knew the votes Mm -hmm. were there. But can you talk about how you do this? Because listeners out there will tell you politics isn't exactly the place for being nice and being civil and being kind. You seem to be all of those things and a fighter. It's not so hard to 
fight hard for what you know is right, Mm -hmm. what you believe in. And there's a proper way to do it, I think, which is respectful of other people. And we have 120 members in the house from all across the state for a reason. There's different life experiences. There's different uh, people's uh, stories that get woven. I don't think any of us here are here by accident at this time. I think we are here as a corporate body uh, by, I think, divine choice. And I don't want to look back and think I didn't use that opportunity to its fullest extent. So Mm -hmm. I look for legislation that I can sponsor in good faith and a good, clear conscience. I sometimes end up with some stray cats. That's what I call them, (laughs) legislation being sought after by people who are largely would be ignored otherwise. Mm -hmm. I'm going to put a plug in for my friends, the reflexologists and music Mm -hmm. therapists. These are other groups of people who are just not big enough to have, say, uh, financial or political clout in the legislature, but are who, who are people who just want to make a living doing their chosen profession. And right. there are obstructions artificially in their way that we're trying to remove right now. Uh, I'm not sure about how tough I am, but oh, uh, you are, I think, though. I think uh, sometimes the Lord opens doors for me in a way, maybe not the same way for other people who are more brash or self-absorbed, let's say. Mm-hmm. To Brian's point, I specifically remember that you can cut this out in committee when um, someone on the committee was, it was just um, the raise the age Mm. legislation before it kind of like, you know, got folded into everything. Mm. And um, someone was talking about the only reason that you would bring these cases up later in life is if you were going for like deep pockets. Mm. And I remember he so eloquently said, that's a reason that people don't come forward. Mm. And I thought it was really moving. Yeah. I can tell you love your job as a legislator. And I, you're such a policy guy. Do you like the political side? The po- uh, the politics, the campaigning, I enjoy. You do? I like meeting people okay. and talking to them. It's a chance for me, really, to get to where people are. So mm-hmm. Like early voting, it's a rigorous yeah. schedule, yeah. 17 days, yeah. 6 to mm-hmm. 7, I think. Oh, my goodness. That, that'll... Yeah. If that don't kill you, you're ready for office. (laughs) You're ready for the legislature. But uh, just dozens upon dozens of conversations with people, you know, some favorable, some not so. But it's a good chance to connect with voters and see what's on their mind and just the whole campaigning and being out in public, going to different events, and again, just hearing from people what they think. Uh, I don't represent myself. I have a core belief that I'm not going to compromise. And I think I have a good understanding of the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of our state that are the guardrails for me as to what I can and cannot do. Uh, So trying to get as much good accomplished within those guardrails and within the the composition of the legislature, uh, that's an interesting dynamic, and it will keep you awake at night. It will keep you praying. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And sometimes... uh, you get to see a good result that makes a lot of it all worthwhile. So So let's say we lived in a perfect world (laughs) and you had a magic wand and you could fix one thing in our politics today. It could be policy or Mm. something else substantive. What would it be? I think it would be uh, the fatherlessness Mm. issue. That seems to drive so many other social problems that we have especially amongst young men, a boy that does not have a man to demonstrate and live before him how to be a gentleman, how to sheathe your manly strength in a meek spirit to serve others, 
in the home, as men, I believe, are called to do. Uh, if you don't have that influence, then the temptations are many mm. in our world. And just knowing there's a lot of men that have a, have a child but have no intention of being a dad and just leave the family on their own. So if you know somebody raised in a fatherless home, despite the best efforts of you know wonderful mothers trying to raise a child on their own, it's not a, at all a slam on mothers, single moms at all. It's just the recognition that not having a father in your life, especially for young men, but even for young ladies, that leads to a lot of the problems we experience now with they have a higher rate of delinquency, a higher rate of drug use. They tend to drop out of school, not finish. Uh, they have more brushes with the law. Mm-hmm. They tend to be, uh, the young ladies especially, tend to have a higher pregnancy rate as a teen. And none of those things have good consequences to them. Right. So I think if I could solve one thing, it would be to get men back in their homes where they need to be mm-hmm. as a, a servant leader, not a big boss. Mm-hmm. but as a servant leader, someone that is called to serve those in your immediate family with love and patience and kindness and sacrifice. Well, Representative Dennis Rydell, we appreciate everything you do in the General Assembly, your leadership in the North Carolina House. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast. It's my pleasure. And I've been looking forward to sitting down with you for some time because you are two of some of my favorite people that I've met here in Raleigh. And my wife, Polly, would say dittos to that. Thank you. Thank you very much. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. I was in Representative Rydell's office. Gosh, I think it was last year, Sky. And I had mentioned to him then how much his civility and the way he goes about carrying himself and the way he talks to people, how in many ways I felt like it ministered to me. I wish I was more like that. I wish that others were more like that. And he told me in his office that day that he wasn't always like that and that he credited two moments in his life. One was his faith, his salvation, and the other was his wife, Polly. Both of those instances, the day he married her and his giving his heart to to Jesus, as he puts it. And it, it was such an honor for him to come on to the podcast and share those stories and more. Representative Rydell, thank you for coming on to the podcast and sharing your story with us. Tweet of the week. The Tweet of the Week is sponsored by the North Carolina Pork Council, representing hog farmers around the state working hard to do agriculture better. Today, hog farms are reducing their carbon footprint by covering lagoons, reducing emissions, and generating renewable natural gas. To learn more, visit ncpork.org. This week's Tweet of the Week is from Jeremy Markovich, and he's at Deftly inane on Twitter, and he's the guy that writes the NC Rabbit Hole newsletter. All right. And he's been on Our State, the podcast before. The tweet is, sometimes the NC Rabbit Hole gets constructive criticism from its cherished readers. And the person's email reads, I never signed up for this crap. Best regards. 
<laughs> and so if you're wondering what kind of stories are on the North Carolina rabbit hole, there are tons of different interesting stories, but their tagline on Twitter is get lost in the unimportant minutia of the best state in the country. So one of their recent articles was asking folks to confess their unpopular opinions about North Carolina in the comments. And I just want to highlight that Stuart W. said, the state is oriented wrong. It should be portrait, not landscape, to reduce travel time between mountains and ocean. Apart from that, I wouldn't change a thing. (laughs) And then someone responded, plus we would be giving the finger to Virginia. (laughs) (laughs) And someone else said, just bear in mind, if you flip it to portrait, now it's like California, and then you have to deal with Californians moving here. (laughs) How about this one? The cardinal should not be the state bird. Sharing a state bird with one other state is cowardly. Sharing the cardinal with six other states is unconscionable. (laughs) (laughs) I made a life decision this week, Sky. Yeah, I was wondering how long it would be until this came up. Proceed. Well, you know how Ozempic's the big craze. Yes, I do. And I know how you've been asking everyone how you can get your hands on it. Like Daniel Baum, who yes. is a lobbyist for, you know. Pharmaceutical company. Yeah, it's like, hey, man, can can you get me some Ozempic? He's like, no, nah, we're not allowed to do that. Yeah, I can't. You need to go to your doctor. I don't want to go to my doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Do you have a doctor? I do, but I can't remember like where he is. What? Yeah, I mean, I go... I went for my 50-year-old colonoscopy and all that. That's not your doctor. That's a GI doctor. Okay. Well, I don't want to mess with that. Okay. And I also know that we have a crappy bronze plan for insurance because insurance for small businesses suck. And Ozempic costs, you know, a lot lot of money. Mm -hmm. Tell people who maybe don't know about this, what is Ozempic? Ozempic is what all the Hollywood stars... It's a diabetes drug. Oh, it's a diabetes drug. (laughs) (laughs) But people are using it for weight loss. Yeah. And there's different brands. Like Ozempic is the main brand, but there's like Manjaro, Mm -hmm. Wegovy. You know a lot about this. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, we've all heard the jokes, you know, Jason Bateman and all these folks out in Hollywood or taking Ozempic and that's why I love that you're one person you're gonna focus on is Jason Bateman (laughs) if when I think of somebody who looks good I think of Jason Bateman he's a good looking man he's my age and he he's thin and apparently he doesn't eat and a lot of Hollywood stars don't eat and so I've decided by the way after a week of eating a lot of food donuts and all the good stuff that come with being at the beach, I've decided I'm going to break up with food. Because I'm having these conversations with my wife, I'm like, you know, I need Ozempic. And suddenly I start getting ads. Yeah. I'm getting stuff because you talk about it so much. Yeah. Well, one of these ads says we do compounding of the main part of what Ozempic is. I don't even know what it's called. The point of this story is that Mm -hmm. Brian did get a prescription for this. Yeah. It's so, by the way, it's so much easier than going to a doctor. And we've now entered into the phase of (laughs) disordered eating, dieting, eating disorder Mm -hmm. to just like cutting corners. That's what you're on now. I am 51 years old. And for $200 a month, 
I can get this injection once a week. By the way, it's at my house right now in yeah. Cary. I got a FedEx notification. It's in our refrigerator because Julie went home because she had to work. She's back now, but she put it in the refrigerator. Saturday, when I get back from a meeting in Greensboro Saturday morning, Julie's going to inject me with this wonder drug. there are a lot of side effects. Oh, yeah. What are they? One is uh, nausea. Yeah. Full feeling. You don't want to eat. You're not going to really take much pleasure. That's sort of the side effect you're looking for. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm done with food. Food and me, we're breaking up. You're like, food, it's gross. Food is gross. Apparently, I will be able to just like, if I'm feeling any hunger, I will like, just swallow my, uh, my saliva and I'll be full. Or I'll eat like a little nibble of a banana and I'll be like, mm, oh, I'm so full. The other. I is, don't support this. I just want everyone to know mm-hmm. that. And so, rest assured, this man will make being skinny his whole personality. <laughs> well, I just don't want people, uh, you know, I don't want to misrepresent myself. Uh, when people come up to me in a few months, they're like, you're honest at least. Yeah. Okay. Like, oh, you're, you're so thin. What have you been doing? I'm like, I've been giving myself an, an injection once a week. Uh, but you're going to be so dramatic. If you're nauseous, mm. you're going to be dramatic. Mm. I dread this whole experience. And I'm going to be sanctimonious as a skinny man. <laughs> 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 I'm going to say to people what they've been saying to me for years. Why don't you just eat less? Why don't you just portion control? Do you really think you should get another thing of French fries? I'm going to be like, you know what? Give me one French fry. Oh, that's too much. That's how I'm going to be. Great. Well, everyone, we can all look forward to this update. <laughs> <laughs> My wife said that I should not be talking about it. I have a theory as to why she thinks I shouldn't talk about it. Why? I think she thinks I'm going to fail. <laughs> like I'm going to take Ozempic. <laughs> I'm going to inject myself <laughs> once a week and then I'm going to keep on eating. Like I'll just work through the nausea. <laughs> because, yeah, I do have an eating disorder. Yeah. I do. Yeah. But I have an eating disorder if I'm not on Ozempic because I love to eat in the middle of the night and I eat, you know, when I shouldn't be eating. We won't talk about it too much, but if you see me in the building, it looks like I've lost some weight, you know. <laughs> Feel free to come up and tell me. <laughs> We're looking forward to be back, being back in the building with y'all next week, and we will bring you the news of the week. But until then, enjoy the rest of the spring break. Go to the beach, go outside, do something fun with your family, and remember to do politics better.